everyone and welcome to this Archives of Disease in Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. Uh, today we've got a, an author discussion uh, of a paper recently published in the paper edition of the journal Lung Ultrasound of the Dependent Lung Detects Real-Time Changes in Lung Volume in the Preterm Lamb. And I have three of the authors uh, with me from uh, Melbourne, Australia and I will get them to introduce themselves. So Arun, perhaps you would like to introduce yourself first. Thanks, Jonathan. My name is Aaron Set. I'm a neonatologist currently working in Victoria at Joan Kerner Women's and Children's Hospital and the Royal Children's Hospital. And I'm also a PhD student at the Royal Women's Hospital and the University of Melbourne. And the topic of my PhD is exploring how we can better use lung ultrasound to guide respiratory support in newborn infants. Thank you, Arun. Uh, and with us, we also have Cheryl, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah, so thanks, Jonathan. I'm Cheryl Rogerson. I also work at the Royal Women's Hospital and the Royal Children's Hospital, and I'm helping Arun investigate the use of ultrasound uh, in lungs. I've been doing ultrasound for over 20 years, and yeah, that's me. Fantastic. And Peter Davis is also with us. Peter, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. I'm Peter Davis. I'm a neonatologist at the Royal Women's in Melbourne, and I head the research department at the University of Melbourne. And it's my privilege to be uh, helping to supervise Aaron on his PhD. Well, thank you all very much for joining the podcast today. There's been a lot of talk about point-of-care ultrasound and certainly a lot of uh, literature about the use of lung ultrasound in the better management of of babies with respiratory distress. I think firstly for for you, Peter, could you give people who are listening a little bit of the background to to where this study has has come from, perhaps where this sits in the timeline of of neonatal respiratory distress uh, research uh, and really what the research question is and perhaps your hypothesis in performing this study? Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. Look, as neonatologists, there's one thing we think we can do well, and that is to ventilate little babies' lungs safely and effectively. And yes, we've we've got better over the years at, at helping those babies survive, but our rates of BPD have really stalled. We're no longer seeing improvements in that outcome and if Lex Doyle's papers are to be believed and we probably should believe them is that we're actually seeing an increased rate of chronic lung disease in our surviving babies and that's in spite of all the developments in recent years surfactant volume targeted ventilation caffeine the prophylactic use of CPAP so we could still do a lot better than we're doing at present and we know that lung disease is impacted by the lung volume state of the newborn lung. And that plays an important role in the pathogenesis of of things like BPD. We have a limited ability to monitor lung volume at the bedside. Conventionally, we've used chest X-ray and that can certainly give us uh, snapshots uh, at most at daily intervals. We are worried about the exposure to radiation of, of that technique. And the bottom line is that uh, X-ray, even at its best, provides an inaccurate estimate of lung volume. On the horizon is EIT, uh, electrical impedance tomography. It's more accurate and it certainly has potential in the medium term. But at this stage, it's really largely a research tool in, in neonates, not available to clinicians. 
lung ultrasound, on the other hand, has, has been around since the last century, but it's really only in the last decade that a reasonable evidence base has emerged for its use in intensive care. The uptake has been variable in the UK and Europe. It's It's been high in the US. It's, it's barely making an impact. As a new technology, it's rapidly evolving and we are starting to try and better understand its properties and to standardise the screening uh, protocols and images. That's great. Thank you, Peter. I think um, Cheryl was very keen to tell us, and really for those of us who are uninitiated, um, perhaps, um, Cheryl, you could give us a, a brief summary of lung ultrasound and the technical differences and challenges to other types of ultrasound and perhaps to the use of ultrasound and imaging, for instance, say the heart, like an echo. So can, can you give us some technical background to, uh, to help us sort of understand um, this modality? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jonathan. So I've been working in point-of-care ultrasound uh, all the, uh, for a very long time, and lung ultrasound is an absolute um, great example of where ultrasound can give you the answer more quickly. Um, it's quicker than getting an X-ray for for most units. You know, getting an X-ray is often you know fifteen twenty minutes, where an ultrasound is really pretty much instantaneous. As compared to the difficulties of cardiac, which is a very complex structure and requires quite a lot of training, you know, one to two years before you can really get interpretable images and, and understand what you're looking at, lung ultrasound is very straightforward. And the other advantage of lung ultrasound is you don't need a really fancy machine. And in fact, a machine that has um, just basic ultrasound and doesn't have all of the fancy cancelling ultrasound and image improvement uh, software actually gives you a better uh, lung ultrasound. So a very basic ultrasound can perform lung ultrasound. The baby's lungs are straightforward. Uh, you've got different areas and obviously the bigger the child, you can very definitely get upper and lower lesions. And I think the most important advance that we've had is understanding that, yes, these are artifacts that we're scanning generally, unless the lung is completely atelectatic with no air or complete consolidation. It's the interpretation of the artifacts. And if we can reliably interpret the artifacts and by doing studies show what these artifacts mean, we can actually improve the way that we can alter ventilation in real time. We can do repeated ultrasounds, see how our ventilation is affecting the lungs without disturbing the infant very much. There are good studies that show that the lung ultrasound is very well tolerated um, as compared to other echoes and other forms of ultrasound. And also there's no radiation. So these are, are pretty rapid assessments and it really is very definitely point-of-care ultrasound where you can uh, establish what your ventilation changes have done to the lungs. Thank you for that. I mean, it sounds, it sounds almost ideal. It sounds almost perfect. Yeah, it is. It's relatively easy to learn. You've just got to understand the artifacts. That's great. Thank you. Um, so, Aaron, bringing you on to your, um, your paper and sort of the the application of this in a, a subject. Can you just um, sort of give us a, a bit of a flavour for the setting of your study, what you were trying to set out to do? Were you comparing ultrasound with 
sort of a perceived gold standard or another modality. Um, if you could just tell us through what the methods were of your studies and some of the other techniques that, that you were used and, and perhaps even if this is so such a safe methodology, why do it in animals to begin with? Why does it not go straight, straight to humans? Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, I'd, I'd be glad to give some background um, to the setting of the study. Um, so this study came out of the Animal Research Lab and Neonatal Research Group at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. And it was part of a larger group of studies which was exploring the impact of different respiratory support strategies used in the delivery room and how these uh, differentially in initiate lung injury pathways. So in these broad group of experiments, we utilise an animal model that was first described by Noah Hillman and Alan Job in 2007. And this is a model which uses preterm lambs. And in this model, what happens is the, the lamb is, is delivered and instrumented um, and left attached to the placenta. So this is a placental support model. Um, and then is subjected to different types of ventilation strategies um, and leaving the animals attached to the placenta means they don't need to be given any supplemental oxygen, any supplemental IV fluids. The anesthesia is maintained through the use. So you can really tease out what the impact of the different ventilation strategies are on, on lung injury. And at the end of, and in all of our experiments, we measure lung volume with EIT. So the lung volume measurement is always there. And to calibrate all of these measurements and to calculate the static lung compliance, at the end of the experiment, we map the pressure volume relationship of the respiratory system using the super syringe technique. And in this technique, what's done is there's a large calibrated glass syringe, um, which is around 200 mils in volume. And we inflate the lungs via the endotracheal tube, which is a cuffed tube with no leak. And we inflate the lungs to predefined pressure increments with known volumes of air, which we can measure from the syringe. And what this allows you to get is a is is absolute lung volumes and a static pressure volume curve. So this this measure this technique of mapping the pressure volume relationship is a gold standard measure of lung volume because we allow the lungs to deflate to functional residual capacity before performing the procedure. And it was here that we saw the opportunity to try and validate some of the changes that we see in these lung ultrasound artifact patterns. Um, it, was, it was a great opportunity because we already had a gold standard technique with known lung volumes at predefined pressures. And so, so in this study, we sought to validate lung ultrasounds estimation of lung volume by performing lung ultrasounds at each step of this manoeuvre. Um, so we go from zero to 35 centimetres of water. They're quite rapid changes in, in pressure. So we hold each pressure increment for about 30 seconds or shorter if the lung volume has stabilised, and we performed lung ultrasounds at each one of these measures. So in, in this study, we, we acquired 260 lung ultrasound images from one region of the lung. It was quite challenging to image the entire lung just because the procedure is so quick. And then we went away and blindly reported all of the lung ultrasound images and compared them to the absolute measures of lung volume. Okay, that, I mean, that sounds like a, a sort of a, almost a pure sort of physiological sort of model attempting to to sort of delineate the sort of hysteresis uh, using using ultrasound, which is which is you know fascinating for people who perhaps aren't entirely aware of of the term EIT. That's electrical impedance tomography. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. I can describe that in a... Yeah, if you wouldn't mind, just because I think it perhaps it's... A, I think Peter mentioned it at the start as well. 
perhaps it's something people aren't yep. necessarily aware of, but it would be useful. And perhaps if you have a, a link or a, a paper that you can link point us towards as well for people's background reading. Yeah, so electrical impedance tomography is probably the main competitor, if you wish, for non-invasive radiation-free lung imaging. And it's based on the principle that the more aerated your lung is, the higher the impedance is to the transfer of electrical currents through the lungs. So the way it works um, nowadays with the modern systems is there's a soft fabric band um, which has integrated electrodes. Um, they're usually between 28 to 32 electrodes. And that band just sits around the thorax. And as the lung is inflated, um, there's more air inside the lung and the overall impedance to, to electrical current increases um, and then proportionally decreases as the lung is deflated. And it's this change in impedance which can then be converted via specific algorithms to calculate what the changes in end-expiratory lung volume are. So it's a, it's a really promising tool. It's also been around for quite some time and there's been a lot of development in the technology as well where the original ERT systems, um, at least in the animals, had to be individual needles that were placed through the skin and in babies were actually ECG leads that needed to be trimmed to size where, where else now it's all been integrated into this very soft fabric band that just sits around the chest and doesn't impede breathing and so this is this is quite a good tool um in this experiment it's a pretty accurate measure of lung volume because it is calibrated to the pressure volume curve derived from the super syringe um, but as peter did mention earlier it's still very much a research tool there are few units which have access to an eit system in victoria at least and as far as i'm aware none of them are using them in clinical practice to guide respiratory support the, the paper which um the paper which I think gives the best overview of EIT was um published by Enos Frerichs in two thousand and seven and that was part of the trend study group and that was published in Thorax in two thousand and seventeen and I can provide you with a link to that paper that gives a very nice overview of EIT how it works how they calculate the different lung volumes and ventilation measurements. Excellent. Um, is that, I, I believe you have referenced that in the paper, so um, we can add the link to that, but I think it's reference 12 in your in your manuscript. It is, um, yeah. Yeah, so thank you for that. It's a really fascinating uh, set of, of techniques. Um, so in terms of the the findings, what, what in terms of the most striking finding, the most important findings that you uncovered in your, in your study? Well, I think um, the most striking thing that we demonstrated was that the ultrasound was able to detect these quite rapid changes in lung volume that was occurring during the pressure volume mapping. And like I said before, these were only 30 second pressure increments at each time. And so that was that was quite striking how quickly the lung ultrasound detected the changes. And the other thing we noted, and this can be seen in the figures in the paper, is that there appeared to be distinct points where the lung ultrasound scores began to rapidly increase during the inflation series and also rapidly decrease during the deflation series. And this, of course, requires further validation, but it appears that lung ultrasound is picking up on those opening and closing pressures that we all look for when we're performing lung recruitment. I think one thing that we noted were some important limitations of the lung ultrasound as well. So um, the lung ultrasound did not detect smaller changes in lung volume that were occurring at lower pressures. 
Um, and there was quite a wide distribution of lung ultrasound scores. And we think that's because the lung ultrasound was was really detecting large changes in volume and not, not the smaller changes that occurs at the extremes of pressures. And again, this, this may not be a limitation of lung ultrasound itself, but it's more likely to be a limitation of the visual scoring systems that we're currently using in practice because um, all of these are based on arbitrarily defined artefact patterns and not based on a more continuous measurement. And on that, um, you use a modified scoring system. Is it worthwhile mentioning the, the validation of that? Um, you mentioned that's potentially a limitation. Yeah, um, yeah, we did. We did use a modified scoring system that was heavily based on the scoring system that was first proposed by Rosalind Bratt and her colleagues. And the reason why we modified it is we were concerned that the scoring systems that were used in clinical practice weren't able to. Um, detect the changes in collapse that we've observed in babies when they're ventilated and have had pressure changes and we've done lung ultrasounds on them. So really the only modification to the scoring system was adding in additional grades of atelectasis and then to make it more congruent with lung volume, we changed the order where, where the best lung ultrasound image had the highest score. But yes, we, we do have to acknowledge that the score, this scoring system has not been used in any human studies and therefore hasn't been validated against any other measures in the neonatal population. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. And and can I ask, uh, you did all the measurements yourself? Um, no. So, um, so I acquired all of the ultrasound images myself. So there was a single yeah. sonographer, um, if you wish. Um, but in fact, in order to just sort of minimise the bias, we actually had two investigators who are not part of the experiment at all, report all the images. Um, and all 260 images were, were de-identified and randomised as well and then reported in a series. So, yes, yeah, so I, guess, I guess one thing that wasn't investigated in this study was the differences in image quality that, that occurs between different operators. Um, but, as, but as Cheryl said, compared to other type of ultrasound, it's, it is quite an easy imaging tool to learn, uh, imaging modality. There's not actually a specific view that you need to get in comparison to, say, an echo or a cranial ultrasound. So we, we did think that the differences in image quality would be negligible, especially if we had another investigator who had some ultrasound experience. It sounds ex extremely exciting, uh, and certainly it sounds like there are some real-life clinical uh, implication impact. Um, Peter, could you perhaps just share where you think this, I suspect where the study is going next and perhaps what um, benefit there would be to, to clinical impact um, in the long term? Yes, thanks, Jonathan. It is really exciting, isn't it, that we might have a, a, a new technique to enable us to better guide lung recruitment, better define the optimal point of ventilation that is getting the baby onto the deep, deflation limb of the curve. Um, you asked the question earlier, um, why not do this experiment in, in humans to start with, if it's so easy? Well, I, I think we've we've heard already in the discussion that's that's occurred that by doing it in this animal model, we're able to test the extremes of ventilation from total lung collapse to total lung inflation in a, in a very careful way. We now need to take this uh, these techniques into the human situation and, and see if we can reproduce the accuracy in the real world of the neonatal intensive care unit. Uh, 
So we'd like to be able to distinguish recruitable from non-recruitable lung disease. And we'd, we'd like to see the clinical effects of having this additional tool to guide lung recruitment. Does that actually improve the outcomes for these babies? Does it get them off the ventilator sooner? Does it reduce um, measures of bronchopulmonary dysplasia? And as Aaron has hinted at, one of the, the issues we've seen in this uh, study and, and others is that ultrasound is still a fairly blunt instrument when it comes to evaluating the lung. And I'm sure in 10 years' time, when we look back, we will regard it as a fairly crude measure. We're looking at other ways of, of increasing the precision of, of this tool, uh, things like utilising a grayscale artificial in, intelligence to in, interpret the images. I think that this is where it's, it's heading. And uh, luckily, we've got Arun is a smart, passionate young neonatologist, enthusiastic about this um, about this technique, and I'm sure we're going to see lots more developments in this field in, in coming years. It, it sounds extremely exciting, and um, thinking about the the range of applications and uh, perhaps the a window to the areas of of practice that we haven't had before. Um, so thank you all very much. Um, just before we finish, Aaron or Cheryl, do you have any thoughts on application or next steps, or how people can uh, provide some uh, input into this new uh, modality aside from obviously learning it? Yeah, I think, Jonathan, one of the important things is that uh, people who are starting out with ultrasound as a point of care tool, they need to be aware of, you know, adequate training and having a good uh, system where you do your images and you have a good system of review, a good system to um, oversee that you're getting quality images that are interpretable. And I think that uh, the point of care training is important that it's done in a in a very planned way. And I think that, um, yeah, I suppose so from my point of view, I, I just really want to see that people uh, embrace it and em embrace it enthusiastically, but also in a very sort of controlled, um, systematic way, which I think Aaron's trying to do with his studies, make sure that what we say we're seeing, we're actually seeing and that, that it is actually interpretable. But point of care ultrasound is a, a really exciting development for our neonates and there's many more applications than just lung. And again, science... Um... Fantastic. And Aaron, do you have any uh, closing comments? Of you're obviously knee deep in in, in a PhD, and uh, probably can see better than most where this might be heading. Well, um, I suppose um, for for everyone listening, um, I'd really like to emphasise that this is still a very new field, um, lung ultrasound, and how we can use it to better care for our babies. And there is so much more research that needs to be done from what started in the delivery room moving into the NICU. There is a distinct lack of interventional studies which use lung ultrasound-guided therapies, um, and I think that's also an important next step. Um, and I think as neonatal clinicians, we have a really good opportunity to integrate a new imaging tool into our practice on the foundations of a really sound and robust evidence base um, so I would encourage everyone really to pick up the probe, look into resources for learning lung ultrasound. If you have a research idea 
find some good supervisors, some people with experience with lung ultrasound and research and go for it. Um, and perhaps we can share some uh, learning tools and resources and, and organizations for, for people perhaps to look into it. Because I know around the world there are different uh, pathways that people can uh, can embrace this so perhaps we can we can share that to uh, perhaps build some momentum and enthusiasm for what seems to be a very exciting and uh, uh, useful uh, modality to as you say to, to to better improve the care of, of babies we um, can deliver in the most intelligent way that we can Absolutely, Jonathan. I'm sure that uh, Aaron and I can share the ASIM website, the Australian Society of Ultrasound Medicine website, which has an online learning package that people can do. Fantastic. Well, thank you all uh, very much for um, what I think will be a very unique and, and, and fascinating discussion uh, for people, both on the your specific uh, paper, which is open access, I should also say, uh, in this um uh, paper edition of, of the journal uh, and also the, the general discussion of, of long ultrasound and its exciting new applications in, in neonatal medicine. So thank you all very much. I, I believe that uh, Aaron, you have a Twitter handle that people can uh, engage with you. Um, could you just share what that is so people can ask you questions and contact you perhaps on social media if that's... Of course, it's at Aaron Sitt, um, A-I-U-N-S-E-T-T. And a number of co-authors, including um, Cheryl, Brett Manley and David Tingay also have Twitter handles as well. Uh, Cheryl, can you share your Twitter handle? Uh, thanks, Jonathan. It's at Sheza, S-H-E-Z-Z-A-622. And, and Aaron, do you have David Tingay's Twitter handle to hand? It is at David Tingay. Couldn't be simpler, I suppose. There was also... Um, Dr. Prue Pereira Fantini, who's been a very good mentor to me in the lab as well, and was one of the authors on the paper, at Dr. Dr. Underscore Prue, P R U E. Uh, and Peter, do you have a Twitter handle? I'd like to tell you I can be contacted by Carrier Pigeon uh, to the Royal <laughs> Women's Hospital, Jonathan. Yeah. Okay, sure. We'll um, we'll make sure those pigeons are available for people to get access to. Uh, and I believe uh, Brett Manley's is at Dr. Bretty. And uh, it would be great if we had some, you know, discussion um, with uh, some of the authors on, on some of these topics, uh, as tends to be the case on, on Twitter with uh, Point of Care Ultrasound. You can get the podcast uh, via the ADC FN uh, web page. Um, it's also available via SoundCloud and wherever you get your podcasts, so Apple Podcasts, TuneIn and other uh, apps. Uh, and again, I, I thank the authors for the very uh, interesting and lightning discussion and I hope everybody enjoys the podcast. Thank you all very much. Thank you.